The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, ramen noodle sales are up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 444 with guest Ted Newer, recorded live Monday, April 27, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who's putting off reading that book on how to procrastinate, Carl. Oh, Franklin. Hey, thanks very much. It's Carl and Richard, and we're here, and it's Thursday, and thank God for that. And you know what that means. It's a sleepy show. There you go. Well, it's also like the end of the... We're just about to be a tech head. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Tech head's going to be a ball. Uh, it's going to be crazy. I crazy. I got lo- lots to do. Especially Thursday night. Oh, yeah. Thursday night's going to be nuts. One week today. Thursday night's going to be insane. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but there's a rumor that Band on the Runtime is going to play. No way. Yeah. Wait? It might happen. Might happen. Thursday night. The only way you're going to know is to go to the attendee party at Tech. Yeah. So let's get into Better Know a Framework. Of course, this is where I... Shine a little flashlight on a far-flung corner of the .NET framework in hopes that over time, these little things will seep in. Maybe you'll learn something. Maybe you won't. But uh, and if you don't, you know, who cares? It's just a few <laughs> minutes. It's no, no skin off your nose. Come on. Get your own show. Nice. So today we're going to talk about the system.windows.corner radius structure, which represents the radii. How do you like that? Oh, nice. This is an interesting word. R-A-D-I-I. Radii. Radii. The plural of radius. There you go. Radiuses. Radiuses. <laughs> of a rectangle's corners. So corner rectangles, obviously everything's in vectors. So you got to have a structure. Uh, corner radius. Right. Yeah. It's easy because, you know, we're not, we're no longer square. 
<laughs> it's true. And, I'm looking at my my uh, Vista machine right here, and all the corners are rounded off. Isn't it funny how that happens? It's strangest thing. Have you ever tried to do round, rounded corner forms in, uh, you know, in non-vector, you know, in regular old .NET? I have not. It sucks. Let me tell you. <laughs> I I did it once, and you have to essentially draw a bitmap with a. How do we do it? I, I think I did it with a PNG file. Stuck a PNG on the corner of the window, essentially? Yeah. No, and then just did an owner draw, you know, just made it a region or something like that. I can't remember, but it was it was horrible because you can't grab the corners. If you have rounded rectangles in .NET, you know, non-WPF, right. Windows Forms, you essentially have to draw your own form and you don't get all the great things that forms do. Like, well, you know, resize. Yeah, corners of windows are rather important. Yeah, kind of. Something to yeah. grab onto to move them and resize them, you know. <laughs> you can move them, of course, and moving a form is not a big deal, but resizing yeah. is impossible. So anyway, there it is, the corner radius structure. Know it, live it, learn it, love it. You got an email for us, Richard. I do indeed. Let's hear it. And this one's from Jameson Smallwood. It says, hello, Carl and Richard. I've been listening to .NET Rocks for over a year now and have yet to be disappointed by the high level of technical content, geek banter, and most importantly, the passion for technology you each share that so clearly comes through in each show. Not to mention the inane techno babble. <laughs> and great theme music. Ah, yes. Thank you. I recently marked the passing of my third year as a professional software developer and soon my eighth year as a programmer. Oddly enough, as I listened to the older episodes of .NET Rocks, I realized that I grew up as a programmer on the .NET framework. Wow. .NET Rocks is not just a look at the current state of .NET and Microsoft's bleeding edge projects, mm. but has also become a historical canon of the progression of .NET. Yeah, it really has. We started way early. Right at the beginning, right? Yeah. And think about shows like Show 8, the Chris Sells one, where he basically went through why garbage collection is what it is. Yeah. You know, those those shows are still relevant. Absolutely. Before I conclude my email with the customary request for swag, let me thank you for providing us mere mortals with a window into the life of titans such as yourself and the great guests that you have had on your show. Aw, shucks. Dude, you're a titan? Uh, you're, you're a titan? You're a titan? No. What's up with the hair? I'm, I'm not a titan. Not a titan. Just a guy with a microphone. That's it. And yeah, if, it, if there's anything smart about us, it's that we screwed up first. <laughs> That's all I can say, right? That's about it. People talk about, you know, how do you figure all this stuff out in your session? I screwed up first. Well, let's just say that people listen not for us. Yeah. It's yeah. about the guests. It's about the guests. Anyway. Best regards from Jameson Smallwood. Jameson, thanks for the great email. A mug is on its way to you. And if you've got questions, concerns, ideas for shows, criticisms, you name it, fire us an email. .NET Rocks at franklins.net. Excellent. And, uh, hey, you know, if you're still looking for a job out there and you're a hotshot.net developer, you don't know where to turn, consider Infusion Development. These are our friends down in Manhattan. Very fun people to work for. A lot of creativity. Um, they have offices in Manhattan, in Toronto, in London, and in Dubai. They will move you there. The right people, of course. If you're interested, send me an email, carl at franklins.net, and I'll hook you up with them. All right, Richard, let's introduce our guest. This is uh, uh, one of our uh, most frequent guests, Ted Neward, of course. Hi, Ted. Hey, Carl. How are you doing? We've, uh, we've, we've read your bio so many times that all we got to say is, it's the dude again. <laughs> 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 I feel like I should be doing this with, like, you know, bowling alley background noise. Yeah. 
going to clink your white Russian up to there the microphone go. here. There you go. Just watch the effing point, Donnie. <laughs> Donnie, you're out of your league. So, so what have you been up to? Oh, well, let's see. The usual sort of thing, you know, running around, speaking at a bunch of conferences, writing a bunch of uh, blog posts and articles and books and stuff, and, uh, you know, just in general kind of making trouble. Um, you know, back in uh, September, I joined up with ThoughtWorks, and so I've been kind of making trouble on their behalf now. And, um, you know, just in general, kind of hanging with my homies in the, the .NET and the Java space. How is the Java space these days? Well, you know, it's funny. The Java space, uh, up until, uh, up until a couple of weeks ago, it was pretty much the same old, same old. And, uh, then we got this, uh, bit of news about, uh, Sun possibly being bought by IBM. Yeah. Which then turned into, oh, no, 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 IBM's not buying Sun after all. And then it turned into, no, Oracle's buying IBM. And that has definitely thrown, you know, a bit of a monkey wrench, uh, into everybody's day. They're kind of trying to figure out what's supposed, what's going on with that. So wow, suddenly Oracle owns a language. Well, Oracle owns a whole bunch of stuff, right? And, and of course, you know, we should be careful here. Prefix this with all the, you know, it's all pending. If the deal goes through, if the DOJ doesn't get involved, blah blah blah. But so far, all indications are that it's gonna, it's gonna happen. So yeah, Oracle's gonna own a whole bunch of stuff that they didn't have before. Do you think this is analogous to Microsoft buying Fox Pro? Ah, uh, well. Um, I think a lot of Java people will get really pissed off at you for analogizing that Java is somehow Fox Pro. Uh, <laughs> no, Fox Pro that's people not, are going to get pissed no, off. No, you at made that inference. I did not. I'm saying <laughs> the analogy is: Do you think they bought it to to kill it, or do you think um, they bought it to uh, to control it as a competitor? I, I think move. it's much more the latter than the former. Right? I, I think Oracle gets absolutely nothing. By uh, by buying Java in order to kill it, um, because if Oracle saw Java as a competitor, then you know as much as my friends at Sun are going to hate me for saying this, you know they do a lot better for themselves if they just let Sun continue to run Java. Because for a long time, Sun has been kind of seen as this lame duck president, if you will, over the, the over that particular part of the industry. I was actually thinking more about MySQL. You know, the, you know, what are they going to do with that? Well, you know, it's, it's it's interesting because there's there's a whole bunch of things that Oracle yeah. gets out of this deal, right? MySQL right. is one part of it. Java is one part of it. Remember, Oracle now also gets Postgres, which is another right. open source database that was frequently seen as sort of the you know the step up, right? You know, if MySQL was what you started because you were just beginning, then Postgres was the next open source database that you used because you wanted to get something that was more bulletproofed and, and reliable, etc. And then after that, you went to one of the big boys, right? You went to like a DB2 or an Oracle or something like that. Um, Most of the folks that I ever met using Postgres were guys who, who loathed Oracle. They switched to Postgres to get away from Oracle. Right, right, absolutely. And, and, and what that says is that, you know, that tells you, number one, um, well, there's a bunch of different things that, that, that comes out of that statement, right? Number one, Postgres, because it could serve as a replacement for Oracle, that tells you the you know the degree of faith that people had in Postgres, um, and you know what happens to the Postgres community now that Postgres is you know quote unquote officially owned by Oracle. That I don't know. I'm not close enough to that community to be able to really say. 
But I mean, the fact that so much of what Sun owns now is what Sun owned and what Oracle owns now. So much of that stuff was open source. A lot of people are looking at this, myself included, as you know, maybe this is Oracle's grand entry into the open source space. Oracle's even less open source than Microsoft is. Yeah. Yes. Although they have had some open source offerings, they've never really been that good about, you know, pushing them. They've never been really been that good of announcing them and sort of, you know, fostering a community. This might be their, you know, their grand attempt to sort of get into the open source space rather than trying to grow it from scratch. Maybe we just shell out like $8 billion. I think it's like five and a half after you take cash and so forth out of the equation. And, um, we inherit an open source community that's already in place, right? That, that, if, if Sun doesn't, I mean, if Oracle doesn't, you know, completely, um, try to kill that open source movement, this could actually be a really, really strong entry for them into the open source space. Assuming they're willing to sort of run with that culture rather than try to dominate it like they've tried in the past. I guess we got, we got to go all the way back to the question of why the heck Oracle did this at all. Did they do this to stop IBM from doing it? There's a couple of different, there's a couple of different scenarios, right? And it kind of depends on how you imagine what, what Larry's thinking. Um, number one, this is an anti-IBM play, right? Uh, IBM is their last standing rival in the Java space. Purchasing, if IBM buys Sun, Oracle feels itself completely outnumbered and outmaneuvered and says, we have to buy Sun as a defensive move to keep IBM from buying Sun and owning almost lock, stock, and barrel the Java space. The other move says, this is actually an anti-Microsoft play, which is um, by purchasing VEA, what was it, 97 or 2007, uh, two years ago, they acquired a very good application server, which puts them in a better place to compete in terms of, you know, application development for the large Fortune 100 companies. Um, and by purchasing Sun, now they get, in addition to the app server, now they get the language and the platform as well as the, the branding. Um, they also get an operating system, and they also get a very lucrative storage area network business. Uh, plus they get the open source database. I mean, now they have, in many respects, an even more complete stack offering, complete stack offering than Microsoft does. Because Microsoft will give you everything except the hardware. Now Oracle can give you the hardware with everything preloaded. I mean, in many respects, this turns into, you know, buy an Oracle box, plug it in, turn it on. There's no step three. You've got a production data center in two steps. And that's a very compelling story right now to a lot of companies. Yeah, it certainly makes things a bit simpler. I just, you know, whether it was IBM or Oracle, they both have the same problem. They have a high-end database product. And and I just, I look at the battle inside of Microsoft between SQL Express and SQL. And, the you know, they they, they keep crippling the small guy, the, the free product so that it won't compete with the big product. And you still have battles of that. I mean, the first time that a uh, somebody abandons an Oracle license for a MySQL license, you got to think the company's going to go nuts. Well, I think what they're going to do, uh, I think what Oracle is is looking at is, is and, and I think this is a very, very real assessment. I don't know that anybody abandons an Oracle license for a MySQL license because, you know, MySQL, remember, has that dual licensing model which says you can use it for free 
or if, you know, as long as you're willing to accept the restrictions of the GPL, if you can't accept the restrictions of the GPL, okay, now we'll sell you a license, and that's going to cost you some money, et cetera, et cetera. I, you know, I, I think in some respects, Oracle may be taking this position that says, you know, the people who are able to downgrade, if you will, from Oracle 11 down to MySQL, we probably weren't going to get a whole lot of money out of them anyway, right? right. You know, either because they don't have the money or because they don't want to spend the money or because they just, you know, they have a moral disagreement with the idea of spending money for software, right? And this way, if they own MySQL, you're going from Oracle product to Oracle product. You're still sort of staying within the Oracle brand. Now there's the opposite, which has been enabled, which is to say, go ahead and start with MySQL, right? This is the same uh, same marketing spiel that, that Microsoft will give you about SQL Express. Start with the free thing. When you get to a point where your database needs features that the free thing doesn't offer, here's a very easy upgrade path to take you to the thing that gives you all the features you could ever possibly want and allows you to scale till the cows come home, et cetera, et cetera. And Oracle engineers will undoubtedly be spending the next, you know, six months working on making that transition be as smooth and as seamless as possible. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik. And when it comes to testing web applications, usually you have two options. Do it manually, which is hard and takes forever, or use automated testing software, which is quite expensive and rarely does a good job with modern Ajax applications. And all of this is destined to change with Telerik's new automated testing solution, WebUI Test Studio which promises to bring a new era of automated testing to the masses. The product is offered in partnership with Art of Test, the experts in quality assurance technologies. Telerik Web Test Studio is specialized for testing ASP.NET applications, especially ones with rich Ajax and client-side functionality. What's more, it's fully integrated in both Visual Studio Team Suite and Professional Edition, making it easy for developers and QA to collaborate. To top it off, the studio ships with special wrappers for the Telerik Ajax controls, which expose control-specific test actions. Web UI Test Studio is ready for the future, with Silverlight testing features coming soon. Check it out at telerik.com, and don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. I got to think that the the Postgres guys are the guys who got to fear the most. Well, I mean, will they really keep two open source database products alive? Well, there's definite redundancy in this purchase, right? There's Oracle has their own application server, the Oracle application server, and they pretty much pushed that one off, you know, onto the shelf in favor of BEA. They also have the BEA JVM, which was known as JRocket, which is also going to you know, in some respects, be redundant when compared to the Sun Hotspot VM. Um, You know, so there's a couple of places where there's redundancy here. And, you know, I don't know. There's there's arguments to be said for keeping the redundancy in place and offering those two as commodity products to compete against one another. There's a lot more stronger argument to be said for, yeah, maybe they'll kill one in favor of the other. You know, I don't know if I'm a if I'm a guy who's been spending his living working on Postgres. I don't know that I'm going to be expecting a whole lot of support from Oracle, but since it is open source, theoretically the Postgres community could keep going without any input from Oracle whatsoever. I don't know it, right. that that one I'm not sure of. So I mean, yeah, getting them closer together is going to be interesting as well. But I guess the bigger play here is that uh, 
Oracle suddenly owns a major version of of Unix and the the language and Java. It's just the the Java. Right. Yeah. The only other sort of big language out there. Like that's a that's a big deal. Yeah. What if they start de open sourcing some of this stuff? Well, that is a concern. You know, a bunch of the Java people, you know, looking at Oracle's track record in open source, you know, they they're looking at that and going, Yee, what if they do try? And there have been people who have said, No, it's not possible because Java's been GPL, there's no way they could start, you know, delisting it, you know, de open sourcing it. Um, I think that's a naive view. I think Oracle, if they choose to, they could very easily pull it back out of the open source community and dare anybody who has lawyers and time and money to try to sue them to get it back out there. And who knows where that would go. Um, I don't think, I mean, if, if I think that it runs entirely contrary to the idea of buying Sun, quite honestly. I think, I think Oracle needs Java more than it wants to to, to kill off a potential competitor, because realistically speaking, you know, if, if Oracle turns around and says, "All right, we're going to remove um, Java as an open source product, we're going to make it a commercial competitive thing that you have to pay royalties for," they're going to kill a large part of what they bought Java for, right? I mean, in right. terms of getting people out there to write applications on their platform, that's really what Java is there for. Right. And, um, you know, to, to start removing it from the open source community, to start, you know, tearing it down, so to speak, after Sun has spent so long building it up, I think that works at cross purposes with what Oracle really, really wants, which is to say, I think what they want is something to compete directly with Microsoft, and you need an equivalent to be the battle off .NET, right? I mean, otherwise, where do you go if you're writing code on this platform? What do you write it in? Oracle doesn't want you writing it in C Sharp or VB. They want you writing it in something that's not Microsoft. And that right, right. now is Java. So by bringing Sun in, Oracle is now sort of rounded out their set to right. compete with Microsoft blow for blow. Right. At least in the development side of things. Yeah. Well, and the fact that it sets them up to compete blow for blow with IBM is a happy, fortuitous circumstance, right? It just It just works out well for them in both directions. I mean, and what that means, you know, to the .NET development community is effectively that now there are three main players uh, in the application development space, right? There is Microsoft, there is Oracle, and there is IBM. And it means now that Oracle, who has a lot more money and resources, will likely be going much more aggressively after this market, which, you know, IBM, I mean, IBM's a behemoth, right? They, they, they move very slowly and very ponderously and they don't really, right. you know, they don't really directly compete with, with Microsoft in terms of, you know, developer mindshare and so forth. They prefer to go after, you know, the CEOs of the Fortune 100s and leave it at that, relying on their name. Oracle is, is gonna start, you know, you're gonna start seeing, you know, Oracle ads for, you know, for NetBeans and Java and so forth showing up in, like, MSDN, the same way that Visual Studio ads show up in, you know, like, my favorite Java magazines, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're I think, going to be going much more aggressively after the same space that Microsoft.net developers go after. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, in some ways, IBM's the most vulnerable from this because IBM's now left sort of without a language. Well, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. I think what, I, I think what this will do is this will start to encourage IBM 
to try to do a few more things on the CLR. See, they're large enough that they can hedge their bets by being active inside of both spaces. And IBM, remember, has been a very, very active contributor to the Java space for a long time, right? They built right. Uh, what many people consider to be the most, you know, it's certainly numerically the most popular IDE in Eclipse. Um, they've built, you know, several different JVM implementations, et cetera. They've made huge contributions to the Java open source space. Um, I would not be surprised if IBM says, okay, we need to snuggle a little bit more closely to the CLR space to act as a hedge against Oracle. So let's go off and talk to Microsoft about doing more CLR-related things. Let's go off and maybe create a couple of languages for the CLR, and let's get our .NET play in action and, you know, kind of sort of sit in between. And that would also position IBM to be sort of the great interoperability company, right, between Java and .NET, between Oracle and Microsoft, right? Yeah, we can work with both sides, you know. So I, I think that's not an unreasonable move for IBM to do at this point. Yeah, it's just interesting to think about. Even Solaris is an interesting thought. I mean, that's one of the original versions of Unix. And up until now, Oracle's been sort of leaning towards... They had a they have a variation I think of Red Hat right their own their own version of Linux. So but they but I've always known Oracle to run on Solaris that was the way you bought it typically. Right. So in the fact that those two are now together it's just it's interesting that that impact. There's all kinds of uh, different frameworks and things stuff like uh, BEA's uh, uh, WebLogic and Glassfish. I'm just trying to think of them all. Like there used to be tons of them, but they're pretty much all consolidated. And this is just one more round of consolidation. Yep. Yeah. Back in the day, there were like you know two dozen different application server companies in the Java space. And just slowly but surely, right? You know, the where we're you know this, this is kind of like an Agatha Christie novel, right? And then there were two, and that's what we're down to right now. There's WebSphere and WebLogic, plus a bunch of the open source ones, which quite honestly, are kind of hard to measure because, you know, as long as some some guy somewhere is continuing to post updates to the code base, technically that product is still alive. Right. Where in a commercial environment, you know, you have to have customers and they have to be willing to give you money. I mean, it's a much easier way to measure the success of your product. Glassfish has, you know, never really sort of been accorded any kind of respect in the Java community. I mean, ditto for NetBeans, which is Sun's big IDE, but now you can definitely see, you know, since Oracle, I mean, they have JDeveloper, but it got even less respect than NetBeans. So I can imagine Oracle, you know, sort of going through the, the, the list of acquisitions that they've got, sort of comparing the two and saying, all right, you know, let's see, JDeveloper versus NetBeans. That, NetBeans wins because they've got more panache right now. They've got more traction and more interest and so forth. We'll adapt. Right. You know, some of the things we built for JDeveloper and push that into NetBeams and we'll really aggressively market the hell out of this thing and get developers to start using NetBeams. We'll, we'll put Toad into NetBeams. That's one way to push this onto people's desktops. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's, there's a bunch of those things. And in some cases, I think it makes sense for them to keep both, right? Glassfish is a much, much sort of smaller scale app server than WebLogic. So, you know, maybe Oracle continues with Glassfish and says, yeah, if you want to get started, right, server out of the box, particularly if you're using MySQL, we'll go ahead and use Glassfish, right? Instead of LAMP, now we'll get into, let's see, Solaris, um, you know, it's be Solaris, Apache, Glassfish, and, you know, MySQL, which turns into 
Sugpo or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I mean, it, 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 you know, they can start looking at ways to combine some of these parts to attract that same market that is principally interested in the last stack and say, oh, by the way, we'll give this to you as a single download. Right? Here's a, here's a virtual machine appliance stored, you know, ready and waiting for you to download off the Oracle TechNet website. And it's a VMware image. So download it and you're done, right? You know, again, step one, download. Step two, turn on. Step three, there is no step three. And here's a complete development stack with tools and database and, you know, Java, of course, and App Server. And, you know, and that's a pretty compelling story for people who just want to get started with a Greenfield project, particularly if that project is not intended to scale beyond more than five or 10 or 15 users, right? That's, that's exactly the spot that you know, Microsoft has traditionally gone after, you know, long tail kinds of, of uh, development environments, you know, with VB and Access and then later VB.net and SQL Express and so forth. I mean, that's that's a pretty compelling story if you're Oracle. And if you're a company that's interested in maybe building an application that could maybe someday kind of need an Oracle 11G backend. Wait a second. You know, the open source community used to tell me that Getting everything from Microsoft was my big mistake. That because I was in, I could be in the open source community and take, pick and choose each of the bits that I wanted to build the right. perfect suite for me. Right now, I'm just going to buy everything from Oracle. Well, you know, it, and it wasn't even so much the the open source community, although they definitely picked up on that. Java Sun was particularly the ones who loved this idea of best of breed. Right. Right. We're going to just you know grab these individual things. And that was definitely the mantra, right? 2000, 2001, 2002, best of breed, right once, run anywhere. And interestingly enough, you know, if you look at the Java space over the last couple of years, we're not seeing that much anymore, right? You really, you really saw growth in the last two or three years of these all-in-one stack solutions, right? JBoss was kind of the first one to push this, you know, JBoss, um, you know, JBoss Seam, and the JBoss application server, and they have a, a bunch of little corollary products that go with it to sort of round out that stack. Didn't JBoss get acquired as well? Well, JBoss was acquired by uh, Red Hat. Right. Red Hat, yeah. They were acquired by Red Hat, who then later got acquired by Oracle. I remember the, the, uh, the, 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 the history right there. And, you know, in some respects, ever since they got acquired, a lot of JBoss's um, presence, if you will, has been sort of waning. You don't hear as much about them anymore, right? JBoss used to be when they did a release, it was covered all over in all of the Java, you know, developer portals and so forth. Really haven't heard much news from JBoss in the last couple of years since the acquisition. Um, not entirely sure why. They're just, you know, that's just kind of an anecdotal experience so far. They've, they've lost a lot of their momentum, it seems like. Their marketing, oomph. Um, since their acquisition. So, you know, I mean, they're still out there. People are still using them, downloading them, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I know several customers who reported that they were kind of difficult to work with because they were an open source vendor, because they, you know, it's like, ah, well, you know, I'll fix that bug if I feel like it. But, you know, it's not like we're in a contractual relationship, so you just have to live with that. Right. There are a number of customers who got kind of screwed by that. And this, in general, I think... You know, the notion of trying to download all those parts and install them and get them all to work together and, you know, that I think soured pretty, pretty severely in the Java space, particularly amongst production support departments. 
to the point now where I think the notion of a complete stack has most people say, yes, just give me one thing, right? Yes, I understand. I'm beholden to you, the vendor, whoever you are, from now until the day the production center closes down. But I'm okay with that because it means I've got one phone number to call when something goes wrong as opposed to a half a dozen phone numbers and everybody starts pointing fingers at each other saying, well, the bug's not on my part. You know, those guys aren't implementing spec correctly or those guys aren't getting the handoff correct. At the end of the day, I want somebody to come in and fix the problem that I can't fix myself. And a vendor with a complete stack is much more likely to do that than, you know, downloading all these bits and putting them together myself. Yeah, but if you just if you want an all-in-one vendor, go to Microsoft. Well, there is that. Yes, that's always been Microsoft's sort of marketing position. We'll give you that. Um, but there are a lot of companies, very frankly, who just don't trust Microsoft. I mean, just you know, for reasons right or wrong, they don't trust Microsoft. They don't think that Microsoft has the the upper end oomph, right? Microsoft is great if you're building a VD application against an Access database. I mean, I had a CEO tell me at this point blank. He said, there's no way I'm going to trust anything that this business depends on to those guys. <laughs> you know? And some of the reputation is unfair, but they say, look, if they can't even get a, a source control system correct, visual source site, then how the hell are they supposed to get a database correct? I, you know, I don't think that's necessarily a good, uh, a, a, a good way to infer things, but that's a lot of the reputation that the company has. And, you know, so a lot of these CEOs are going, yeah, no, Microsoft is great maybe for our departmental apps. There's no way I'm going to trust them inside of our big, you know, mammoth data centers. That's where Oracle lives. That's, you know, because those guys are rock solid. They never get anything wrong. You know, I mean, you and I know that that's not true, but we're talking perception here, not reality. Right. Well, and then we get back to the perception of what this is, what this monolith is going to look like. Uh, I mean, I've heard that Oracle's licensing practice in general are fairly draconian. Yeah, so, very much so. Yeah, now this they just that, that was when they had competitors. Now they're running low on those. Yeah, and the rumors are that their licensing practices are getting even more draconian now that they're running low on competitors. Right, when you're the last guy standing, you can kind of charge whatever you want because you can get away with pretty much whatever you want. I think the big check there is going to be the presence of the open source ecosystem. You know, that will always be a check and balance against the idea of any competitor getting sort of too big on themselves. I mean, at the end of the day, if Oracle really goes, you know, if Larry Ellison really gets this, you know, maniacal laugh in his laugh and, and really gets this, you know, oh, I'm going to rape and pillage until they stop me, you know, then the open source community will, you know, it'll take them a little while to react, but they'll step up and, and they'll build stuff that's good enough to allow you to replace. I mean, the MySQL community, the Postgres community, you know, even if they can't work on the existing code bases, they'll start over. They'll build a new thing that Oracle doesn't have rights to. Right. And, you know, they'll they'll answer it in their own fashion, and Oracle will eventually find themselves without customers. So, you know, this doesn't signal you know, a return to unimpeded corporate greed uh, within the, you know, Oracle licensing division. But it does mean that you can probably get away with another 5 to 10% hike in your licensing fees uh, because who are you going to turn to, DD2, right? Well, you and know. it's interesting. I think Red Hat is one of the alternatives. If Red Hat had a database between their incarnation of Linux, JBoss, like they've got most of the kit to be an alternative. Yeah. 
And quite honestly, you know, that may be where, if the Postgres community doesn't like living inside of Oracle, that may be where they go. Although, again, we get into the rather thorny legal question of how much of Postgres does Oracle own, right? right. If I try to take the Postgres code and make changes to it and, you know, call it Postgres 2 or something, can Oracle sue me? The other thing, quite frankly, is Red Hat is nowhere near the size that Oracle is. And, yeah. I mean, they're principally known as a operating system vendor, right? So, again, we get to that question of perception. Do I... <clears throat> do I, Ford, or do I, General Motors, want to trust a mission-critical application to Red Hat? Me. Oracle, oh yeah, they're a big, rock-solid, reliable company. I can call Larry and say, dude, what the hell, get this thing fixed right now. Send out your army of consultants to make it happen. I don't even know who the CEO of Red Hat is, much less have his number on my Rolodex. You know, I mean, again, there's just that perception of how large and responsive and reliable are these companies. And Red Hat's just not been around as long as Oracle has. They haven't built that reputation yet. Right. Well, and Oracle owns stuff like PeopleSoft, like some of these big CRM products that uh, that are, you know, we wove through the fabric of some of the largest companies in the world. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's yeah. the other thing that I've heard is, is people have been saying, you know, what this what this play is, what this, you know, Sun acquisition is, it's not even aimed at IBM or Microsoft. It's aimed squarely at SAP, who are their principal competitors in the CRM space. Um, you know, and so in some respects, you know, we, the development community, we could all be fooling ourselves. What Oracle's really trying to do is, you know, knock down SAP a line or two by acquiring, you know, tools, resources, uh, you know, the complete stack to compete more effectively against SAP, right? Java now becomes the new PeopleSoft and, you know, the new uh, uh, power builder, and they're going after the CRM market, which I don't think is the case, but I think that definitely makes for a very, very strong subplot. Uh, I think Oracle gets, you know, gets a stronger position against SAP through the acquisition of Java and everything else that comes with it. I mean, in many respects, if you're Larry Ellison, you have to feel good about yourself right now because that, I mean, this, this acquisition of Sun, um, you know, number one, it's kind of at bargain basement prices considering what Sun was worth back in like 2000, 2001. Oh, right. And number two, considering all the things that sort of come alongside this. I mean, Sun has been working on a cloud play for a little while now, too. It's a guy who was at DSL DevCon, uh, another Ted, Ted Lung. Um, who's, you know, principally involved in a lot of Sun's cloud research. And they were, you know, looking to get into the, the cloud space as well. And Oracle plus Sun, you know, that makes a pretty compelling cloud story right there, right? Because now it's like, okay, we've got a bunch of these, you know, Oracle's just going to take a bunch of those old Spark boxes or x86 Solaris boxes and throw them into a data center and turn that into a cloud uh, a cloud scenario, right? Something to compete with Azure and Google App Engine and EC2. And again, companies are going to feel kind of comfortable because, you know, hey, um, now it's Oracle hosting the hardware and, you know, we're, we were before calling Oracle consultants to fly out to our place of business. Now, shoot, let them stay close to the servers over there, right? For a lot of companies, that makes a tremendous amount of sense. So there's a, there's a cloud angle to this as well. And again, they own the OS, they own the hardware, the storage area networks. I mean, this just makes a tremendous amount of sense for Larry in terms of trying to get into the cloud market. 
Hey, I just want to give a shout out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActorReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActorReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. You know, the other interesting angle on this is that Sun used to make a, a line of unique hardware that largely they, in the past few years, they'd given up on. I think arguably because they'd run out of money for it because it costs so much to develop new hardware. They'd just become pretty much yet another Intel vendor. But it, it'd be fascinating to see them revive the Spark line. Yeah, I don't know about that so much. Because Oracle is really not a hardware vendor either. I mean, right. you know, this is their first... Well, even less so. Well, yeah, exactly. And I think that Oracle is going to have a hard enough time incorporating hardware into their thinking about business, right? Because the hardware business in terms of the production costs and the ROI and so forth is a very, very different game than the software business. And, you know, part of me wonders if Oracle isn't going to consolidate or potentially even spin off the hardware business elsewhere. The only thing, again, that I that I think stops that is, well, if they keep it, then they have this complete stack player that Microsoft doesn't have, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah. I really have a hard time seeing Oracle sinking a whole bunch of money into hardware research because I just don't think, number one, that, that there's, you know, let's be honest, right? The game is over. Intel has won, right? You know, the, 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 all the competitors to the Intel chip have basically fallen away except for the very close clones like AMD and Cyrus. Yeah, but AMD actually went past Intel for a while, and then they faltered and Intel raced back up again. I don't think right. Intel is unbeatable. And I think when you have an end-to-end stack like this, you can make a case for it. What if Oracle sat down? I mean, I think about Oracle's rack architecture, and that used to be closely woven in with Solaris, that if you can now put the hardware guys beside the database guys and build these really unique ultra high-end database infrastructure because you have every side of the a picture there. You don't have to deal with a vendor who's selling to anybody else. They're all one company. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. It's definitely an interesting to imagine. I guess I'm just looking at, you know, in some respects, I'm looking at all of the possibilities that Oracle can play with and thinking what are the most likely ones they're going to pursue first. And it does not seem to me that hardware is high on that list. You know, right or wrong, it just seems to me that that's not the way that they're used to thinking. I think they're going to think, you know, okay, the hardware is here to support the software, not the other way around. Right. Um, so I don't know. I just, it's hard for me to imagine Oracle saying, okay, um, here, hardware guys, here's 500 million. Go off and do something really, really cool. I just, that does not seem to jibe with my understanding of the company. Now, could be completely wrong about that. I mean, that could be, you know, part of Larry's plan is to, to go off and create. I mean, because Oracle dabbled for a little bit in the hardware business before, right? Remember the Oracle thin client, right? You know, the, the network computer right. and so forth that they were pursuing. And Larry and me still have delusions of grandeur in becoming the next, you know, the next great hardware vendor. That's very possible. I don't know. Um it just Well and Thin Client died for everybody, not just Oracle. It wasn't that good an idea. Well, yeah. And you know, I mean he may have ideas for creating, you know, a workstation that's got more power than just a network client. I mean, I don't know. I, I really don't know. 
Um, it just, you know, it just, I don't, it just doesn't seem like that would be a classically Oracle play. Um, if, I mean, it's entirely possible that he wants to try to redefine the company at this point and try right. to turn them into more of what, you know, what classical Oracle wasn't. I don't know. Lots and lots and lots of, of different permutations of, of things to think about at this point in terms of, you know, where they could go with it. Now it just becomes a question of, you know, what's Larry's pet project and how does Oracle make money off of it? You know, what's funny about this is that one of the original promises of that Java stack of this whole model was hardware independence. And we basically conceded the entire thing to the Intel architecture. All of those, the PowerPC, the Spark architectures, they're all gone. And, and the very, and all we've got is a couple of different flavors of Linux and Windows. And, well, don't forget that's the Mac about OS, it. which I guess you could call a flavor of, of Unix, but. Yeah, yet another flavor of Unix. Yeah. yeah, with, yeah, yeah. with a much better UI. Much, 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 much. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, and in some ways that raises some interesting questions, you know, because technically, right, the, the, the CLR, the, the common language infrastructure is written in such a way that it is also technically hardware independent, right? Rotor running on top of BSD, um, was one such, uh, tip of the hat to that idea as well. And I think in general, what's interesting about this is just as we have come as an industry to sort of embrace the virtual machine as the, the fundamental bedrock on which we want to build applications. You know, the idea of the virtual machine virtualizing away the hardware has become almost irrelevant. In many respects, what the virtual machine is saving us from is having to worry about the next gen of Intel chips. We'll just right. let the VM deal with those details. Um, and, and in many respects, we have Java to thank for that because they were really the first platform to come around and, and make that a mainstream idea. Right? Ditto for garbage collection, quite frankly. Um, but yeah, it is it is definitely kind of ironic that right at the, the time when the VM really seems to be hitting its stride and becoming sort of the accepted norm, you look around and realize that all the other hardware vendors have basically fallen by the wayside. Yeah, there's nothing to virtualize to. Well, yeah, there's nothing to virtualize away from. And, I mean, to some degree, operating systems were doing that a little bit for us as well. Uh, virtualizing us away from the hardware. Remember Windows NT, that was its big selling point, right? You could run on the Alpha, the MIPS, the PowerPC, Intel hardware, etc. And then all those other hardware, you know, bits sort of fell away and disappeared. Um, you know, in some respects, one wonders now, you know, if, if the VMs are virtualizing away the OS, you know, how long before we have just one OS left standing and, and, you know, now we get into a really, really interesting discussion. Is that single OS left standing? Is that, you know, a Unix flavor or is that Windows or is it always going to be split between the two? Right. And I'm not even going to begin to try to hypothesize there because I'm going to get in trouble with somebody as soon as I do. So what do you think the average Microsoft guy is going to do differently with this latest round of mergers? Well, I think, you know, I think the impact of the Microsoft community is going to be a bit, <clears throat> it's not going to be direct. It's going to be a bit indirect. Um, in the sense that I don't think the Microsoft developer is going to do anything differently in terms of the code that he writes tomorrow, right? I, I you know, this, and that's true also for the Java developer, right? You know, it's not like the way I build applications in the Java space is going to be different based on this, this merger. I think what is going to happen is the Microsoft developer is going to find himself um, 
a bit more challenged in terms of trying to sell the project. You know, in terms of, okay, I run a business and I'm walking into a shop and I'm saying, hey, you know, I'm a .NET consultancy. I've got 20 guys or 50 guys that know the .NET stack really, really well and we want to build that application for you, whatever it is you want to build. I think that the company is going to say, yeah, but I've got this really compelling offer over here from Oracle to use their stuff instead of the Microsoft stuff. Oracle's willing to, you know, give me Solaris and WebLogic and yada, yada, yada. They're they're willing to give me those tools for free, you know, whereas with Microsoft, I have to spend money for the operating system and I have to spend money for the SQL Server database, et cetera, et cetera. I think the play here is going to be a little bit more in terms of the adoption, in terms of, you know, the developers uh, being asked, well, how well do you know Java? Well, I don't know Java at all. Oh. Well, okay, because our next project, the CEO has said we need to do it in Oracle Java. I think that's the direction that people are going to feel it the most within the Microsoft space. I mean, not to suggest that Java is suddenly going to, you know, start taking over the world and .NET developers are going to be going hungry, but just the fact that there's going to be a small increased pressure to say, oh, okay, well, um, you know, we're doing business with or we're partnering with, you know, this other company that's doing Java. You know, now all of a sudden it's, you know, one less player to have to worry about in terms of the number of people we have to interoperate with, technically speaking. Right. And so it'll actually be a little bit easier in some respects for the Microsoft development community to go out and learn Java because it won't feel like there's quite so many different flavors that you have to master. Right. It'll be say, oh, okay, I just want to go to the Oracle website, download these bits, and now I can at least get to understand how Java works and how all this stuff is supposed to work together. It also simplifies Microsoft life from the perspective of interoperability for some of the various, you know, web standards and, you know, other interoperability standards. You know, now all of a sudden there's, there's, you know, maybe the same group of people are coming to Redmond, but they represent, you know, one less major player. And now if there's interoperability issues, well, okay, you know, there's one fewer player in the mix to try to get some of these things done. I mean, realistically speaking, at this point, it's Sun, it's IBM, I'm sorry, it's Oracle, it's IBM, and it's Microsoft, and those three guys are already very, very used to working with one another to work out some of these interoperability details, and now you only have to get those three to agree on something before it really effectively becomes a standard, you know, as opposed to five years ago in the Java space, there were dozens of different players, all of them bit players, all of them convinced they were right and Microsoft was wrong. Right. And so I think now, you know, we we will hopefully start to see a little bit faster pace on interoperability, and Microsoft will probably be much more responsive now in, in many respects to say, yeah, we interop with Java, we interop very, very well with Java, we interop very well with IBM and Oracle, and if there's something that goes wrong, you know, well, I already know who the guys at those two companies who do the interop stuff We'll sit down, we'll work it out, we can support you well, Mr. CEO, don't worry about it. It'll actually make it easier for people to get into uh, places where the corporate standard isn't the platform you know. Right? It'll be easier for Java guys to get into .NET shops, and it'll be easier for .NET guys to get into Java shops, because the interoperability story will be much, much stronger. But all of this is going to take, I mean, we're talking about a five-year span of time. Right? We're not talking about what's going to affect right. you tomorrow. 
I just wonder how well the Java community is doing in general when you have consolidations like this and, a, and obviously a major change of hands now for the language. Is there a lot of new work going on? Does the, such a thing sort of make them sit back and go, is this now a time to jump away from Java? No, if anything, um, what's happening is, you know, there's, there is, there's been sort of a steady, um, a steady heartbeat. You know, people who are thinking that this is the first sign that, you know, the, the, that the Java body is, is flatlining. I would say that's absolutely not the case. I mean, the Java community, I mean, granted, right, the Java community is suffering from the, the economic downturn as much as anybody else is. Right. Um, but in terms of, you know, the, the people who are involved in the Java community, oh, hell yeah. I mean, quite frankly, uh, a buddy of mine, Neil Ford, said it best the other day. You know, we were on a, on a panel, uh, I think it was in Germany last week. Um, and he said he's convinced that Java will outlive all of us. And I'm pretty convinced he's right because there's just, there was way too much adoption of Java and the JDM, uh, amongst the, the big financial firms on the East Coast. And they don't change platforms very often. So people who are expecting Java to die and that this is a signal of Java dying, I think are going to be very, very upset to discover that that's not the case. I think what is happening is that this is a signal that the people who are running Sun didn't do a very good job of running a business. But technically speaking, you know, a lot of the bits that Sun put out over the years are very, very good, good things. Um, you know, the Hotspot JVM, as a matter of fact, is probably one of the most elegantly designed pieces of software that I've ever looked at. And in many respects, it has a number of optimizations that put the CLR to shame. So, you know, if we're going to measure the success, the vibrancy of the, the community, Java is very, very alive. If we measure the technical success of the things that Sun put out, Java is very, very alive. If we just look at Sun Microsystem stock price, well, okay, if that's your measurement, then yeah, Java looks like it's faltering. But Oracle's having no problems, and I think the fact that they're able to buy Sun at this point indicates that they're having no problems. And Oracle, they've been very successful in the past in acquiring a company and turning it around and, you know, using it to make profits. So, you know, I think if anything, what this does is this breathes a significant surge of life into the Java community. Uh, maybe not the surge of life that the open source community would have liked, but it definitely breathes a surge of life into that community. And, you know, if I'm a Java developer, and I am, I actually feel kind of reassured at the fact that Oracle has picked it up because it means that I won't have to. I mean, the, the worst case scenario that a lot of us were contemplating is Sun goes bankrupt, nobody buys them, and now the JVM and all of its related technologies have to be supported by the community. Right. Which means that's, you know, that's not going to last too long. I mean, there, there really has to be, at this day and age, there has to be a commercial entity who has skin in the game that wants to keep this thing running. So from a point of view of survivability of the Java stack, being owned by Oracle is a good thing. I think so, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think not just survivability, but you know, innovation and forward momentum and all of that stuff, it looks very, very good for the Java community. Which means that if you know people were sort of banking on .NET eventually taking over as Java kind of anemically toppled over and died, that's not going to happen, folks. I mean, I'm just going to tell you right now, Java is definitely, you know, definitely, they're as close to death as the CLR is. Alive and well and living in Larry Ellison's back pocket. Bingo. Yeah. Well, well Richard, um, 
being out of this conversation completely. I think it's only appropriate that you wrap today. <laughs> Ted, uh, we're at the last couple of minutes of our show. Any final words before we sign off? You know, um, the biggest thing that I would say is if you're a Microsoft developer, now is a good time to spend a little time studying the job space if you haven't done so already. The parallels are very strong between the two. And learning how Java developers think will make you that much more attractive to companies who want to hire you because, you know, Java is a fact of life in the enterprise space. And um, if you want to be more hireable than the next guy behind you on the resume pile, knowing Java, knowing the names, the technologies, the acronyms only makes you more attractive. Ted, great thoughts. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And we'll talk to you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.